Now, uh, please turn with me uh, to Genesis uh, chapter 3 for our passage uh, this morning. I want to begin our time with a question. What is wrong with the world today? Perhaps more than any point in recent history, we all have an answer ready to give for that. Your answer might be couched in terms of what is the political party, what is the political ideology that stands most opposite to your own, and that's the problem with the world. Fingers and arrows are pointed away from us. But whether you're here this morning and you're a Christian or not, this is common ground for us. Uh, that we can both agree that the world is not the way that we would hope it to be. The world is not the way that it should be. Why is, why is the world the way it is? And how can the world be made right? It's been said that the doctrine of sin is the one Christian doctrine for which we have undeniable empirical evidence. You just look around. The world is messed up. The world is filled with sin. And Genesis 3, perhaps more than any other passage in the entire Bible, answers the question for us, what is wrong with the world? And the simple answer is sin. It's a simple answer with a very complex explanation because when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it wrecked everything in God's good creation. That everything has been, everything in creation, every, us included, everything, every part of us uh, has been tainted by a stain of sin. It has affected all of us and every part of us. And so let's read Genesis 3. I'm actually going to begin uh, in chapter 2, verse uh, 25, the last verse of chapter 2, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 8 and read down through verse 22. So hear God's word to us uh, this morning. Genesis 2:25 And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Down to verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And he said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself." He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let's pray. Lord, in these moments that we have together today, we pray that you would take what is ordinary, what might be familiar to us, and that you would use it as a means to bless us, to grow us. Lord, we come needing a word from you. We pray that by your spirit that you would speak to us and that you would make us, make our hearts ready and able to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here uh, last week, you know that this is the same passage that Jason uh, preached from. His focus was on the first part of the chapter, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. But today I want to focus on what happens after they sin. Uh, Not just the reality of sin, uh, but what is the result of sin. And so let's look at it in two major parts. We'll break those parts down. Uh, But think about this in two major parts. What happened? How did Adam and Eve respond after their sin? And then secondly, how did God respond to their sin? So first, Adam and Eve. What did they do? How did they respond to their sin? In short, they did exactly what we do. Shame and blame. Let's look at those separately, but let's take shame first. And just think about shame. I actually want to think about it in three different parts. Let's look at shame defended, shame defined, and then shame described. Sorry, a lot of points, but trying to keep us on the same track here. So first, let's think about shame defended. Uh, Shame seems to be the emotion du jour. You read about it and pop culture a lot. There's a lot of writing and research uh, going on uh, these days about shame and the impact that shame has on us. And so it's a valid question for us to ask. Is talking about shame in a sermon like this, is this really just pop psychology with little Jesus sprinkled on top? I don't think so. Uh, And the writer of Genesis would actually agree with me, I believe, because what struck me this week as I was preparing for this is notice how the writer of Genesis frames man's fall into sin. When he wants to talk about sin and how it entered the world and how it has messed up the world, he talks about shame. When the Bible introduces us to sin and wants to give us a framework for how we understand the world, we talk about shame. It is no coincidence that at the end of chapter 2, where do, we, where do we see Adam and Eve? How were Adam and Eve described? They were naked and not ashamed. The writer of Genesis could have used any manner of words to describe Adam and Eve at that point. He could have said, well, they were naked and confident. They were without fear or without regret. They were righteous and sinless before God. Those would have been accurate descriptions of them. Those would have been absolutely true. But he says they were naked and not ashamed. They were shame-free. And so when modern research will tell us that shame is incredibly and highly correlated with addiction and depression and bullying and suicide and eating disorders and violence. When we hear that, Christians can look and say, well, of course. Of course that's true. We have known that for thousands 
of years. Haven't you read Genesis 3? And isn't it great when science can catch up with the Scriptures? Counselors who deal with addictions will tell you that addiction is not about alcohol or pornography or narcotics. That's just the drug of choice for the addict. Those things are not the real problem. Those things have serious consequences in life. Alcohol, porn, and narcotics are just bad solutions to the real problem. What drives addiction are two things. It is shame and the first and closest cousin of shame, disconnection. Shame is a biblical word, and it can be immensely helpful to us to understand our world. But next, let's move to shame defined. It can be hard for us to define because we use it in so many different contexts, but uh, for the purposes today, shame will define as that intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love belonging, and connection. Shame is the belief that if you knew me, if you really knew me, you, you wouldn't like me. If you really saw me, if you really knew me, you would turn around and run the other way. Adam and Eve felt shame as a result of their sin. They experienced that pain of feeling that something is wrong with them, and so they hid in the garden. They felt that pain of feeling that they were unworthy of love and connection. But it's helpful as we talk about shame to say, what's the difference between shame and guilt? Guilt is, I did something wrong. I made a mistake. Guilt has another person in view. I might feel guilty that I said something mean or hurtful to you, but if I, if I feel guilt, I have you in view. Shame, on the other hand, is not I did something wrong, but I am wrong. I'm not, I didn't make a mistake. I am a mistake. Shame is focused inward. If I say something meanful to you, shame would say, I am so stupid. How could I possibly say something like that? There is something wrong with me. Do you see how shame is self-focused? It doesn't have a view of of another person. But next, let's not just define, but let's also describe shame. What is shame like for us? How, How do we experience? It is universal. We all have it. We believe in original sin. We believe that we sinned in Adam and that the guilt of sin is passed to us. As sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we all experience shame. And so you might think if shame is universal, if shame exists across all races and genders and nationalities and cultures and time, if it exists, if it's universal, then it will be easy for us to spot. It will be obvious because it is ubiquitous. But that is not the case because shame is universal, but it's also unique. Shame does not manifest itself in the same way in everybody. You even see that in how Adam and Eve respond to shame differently uh, in this chapter. Shame is like a shapeshifter. It changes forms. It morphs. It adapts. It is like a gas. Remember in elementary school, gas fills whatever, whatever container it is in. And so shame might come out as anger in your life, or depression, or self-righteousness, or it might manifest itself in an addictive behavior. That's part of why it's so hard to talk about, because it doesn't look the same in, in everyone's life. 
ask, so how do we know? How can we begin to think about shame in our own life? Shame is it's often not the emotional low-hanging fruit for us. Shame is typically what lies beneath the surface. Shame is often revealed in stories, awful painful or embarrassing stories that we might tell. Shame has to be excavated. It likes to hide in the shadows. Think about Adam and Eve. If you were to ask Adam and Eve, what were you feeling in the garden, in the, in the trees of the garden? When you were hiding from God, what were you feeling? I think they would have answered exactly how they answered in verse 10. They would have said, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. They would have said, what were they feeling in the garden? What were they feeling when they hid among the trees? They were afraid. But what is fueling that fear? What is beneath the fear? It is their shame. It is their nakedness that is exposure that is fueling that fear. And so what might shame, if that's what it looks like with Adam and Eve, what might it look like in your life? What are some things you might think about in your own life? What are you most afraid of in life? Like Adam and Eve, what makes you want to go hide in the trees of the garden? What makes you the most angry? What do you tend to have an overreaction to when you come up against? What is the area of life in which you are most tempted to look down at someone? Where do you feel the most self-righteous in life? What area of life are you trying to numb? Numbing means that something is too painful or too hot to touch. And so we want to anesthetize with a whole manner of things. Shame's secret weapon is that it's hard to talk about. And it grows best in hiding and in silence. And the power of shame is in its ability to isolate and to disconnect us from one another and from God. Shame is the plant that is its own fertilizer. It grows. When it grows, it makes us less likely to want to talk about it. It is a self-perpetuating cycle. The fear of being exposed leads us to hiding. And so it's Genesis 3.10 over and over and over again. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. We see that cycle over and over in the history of the world. And shame is the terrible gift that keeps on giving. It's not just that it grows in us, but we pass it along. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 4. And what will you see in Genesis 4? Not even one generation later, we see the cycle of shame repeating itself over and over again. The patterns of shame will be reenacted. Shamed people shame people. It's one of the truest things in life. There's so much more we could say, but let's move on. Let's move from shame now to blame. What did Adam and Eve do in response to their sin? They shame, they felt shame, but they also blamed one another. Their inability to deal with their shame led them to blame. It was the way that they discharged their discomfort with what was going on. In verses 8 to 13, God asks a series of four questions to Adam and Eve. He says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And what is this you have done? Four questions. Why the inquisition from God? God is the sovereign Lord of all the earth. He is neither ignorant nor uninformed at this point. But he's at, his asking of them is actually an invitation. He says, come out of hiding. Come out of your shame. Drop your secrets and find healing. 
But look, it, Adam and Eve will have none of that. They will not come out of hiding. But rather than facing the shame, they blame. It was the woman you gave me. It's your fault. It's her fault. It's the serpent's fault. They want to pass blame onto someone else. It is a lot easier to point the finger than it is to do a little self-examination. But yet we are the exact same way. It is almost the shame moving to blame is second nature to us. It's a natural reflex. I can remember a few years ago, we were uh, driving out of town. We were headed uh, on vacation, and we stopped to get breakfast on the way out of town. And uh, I was in the uh, passenger seat. My wife was driving, and uh, I put a drink on the dashboard. I was turning around to give, uh, pass the food out to the kids, and you know what happens next. Hallie taps on the brake, and then the drink comes from the dashboard, and it falls into my lap. And what I want to do is I want to show, I want to play in slow motion that half second between when it starts to move on the dashboard and when it lands in my lap to show exactly how I move from shame uh, into blame. I want to convince you that I'm really good at this cycle, and maybe you are too. So when I first see the drink move, I first see it move off the dashboard, my first thought is shame. Martin, you are so stupid. Why on earth would you leave a drink on the dashboard while you're driving? What, what is wrong with you? Any person with a brain would know that that is a really dumb idea. Why can't you get this right? Do you hear the contempt? The self-condemnation that exists in that? I felt ashamed and embarrassed and stupid. Those are not emotions that I really like to sit with, I'll be honest. So rather than just saying, man, I feel really embarrassed, that was a really foolish decision on my part. I I made a mistake, let's clean it up, and let's get on with the trip. Rather than saying that, I immediately switched to blame. Uh, The cup was still midair, and I am already formulating, uh, mounting a defense of why this is not my fault. And so my first target is my wife. Um, after all, she is the one who dared use the brakes while operating a motor vehicle. Who on earth uses the brakes while they drive? It was obviously her fault because uh, she didn't know how to drive. It was not her fault. She was just doing exactly what she should have been doing. But my second target was my job because I was in the passenger seat. I was actually, typically I would drive on a trip like this. And, uh, but I was the first day of vacation. I had not been able to finish the work. And so if it wasn't for all the unreasonable demands of my job, unreasonable demands that I happened to put on myself, if it weren't for those, I would be in the driver's seat and this wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened. And so in the time that it took the drink to move from the dashboard to my lap, I had felt shame. Uh, I had felt embarrassment and I had pushed those emotions aside and I had already moved to blaming my wife and blaming my job. That is really skilled. That's, that's next level shame and blame. Um, but perhaps you're as good at that game as I am. It seems to me that it comes hardwired in us. My children are pretty good at it as well. I didn't teach it to them. I don't think Paw Patrol taught it to them. But I see it in them all the time. But where does shame and blame leave us? 
What's the result of shame and blame? It leaves us the same place it left Adam and Eve and the same place it left me. Isolated and angry and disconnected. It leaves you with wet clothes and a four-hour trip ahead of you. But thankfully, the story of Genesis 3 doesn't end there. There is more than one response to sin. More important than our response to sin is God's response to our sin. And so I want to look at his response, God's response under three headings, God's pursuit, God's consequences, and then finally God's provision. First, God responds to their sin by pursuing them. Notice at no point in this passage does God ever remove himself from the scene. He never leaves the scene. God doesn't run away from them, God doesn't leave. And further, realize at no point in this passage do Adam and Eve ever make the slightest move towards God. The story is one of Adam and Eve running away and God pursuing them. God is the one who comes after them, even though he is the one who is the injured party. When someone sins against me, I can assure you that my first instinct is not to go after them and try to reconcile things. My first response is to shame and to belittle and to scold and to yell and to give the cold shoulder and to hurt back and to think, what is the meanest possible thing that I could say to them right now? What is the best speech I could possibly uh, write right now in order to let them know how they have really disappointed me in life? But that is not God's response. God is the one who provided everything for them. He provided paradise of joy and connection and wonder, and they did the one thing the one thing that God told them not to do. But God's first instinct is not to shame or to blame. It is to pursue. You and I might be tempted just to scrap the whole thing. Let's just start over. Let's just press the reset button. But not God. God never leaves, and he he never withdraws. He never abandons. He comes after them. But secondly, his pursuit of them is not without consequences. God's response to their sin is he explains the consequences uh, of their sin, that this is what the world is going to be like because of sin. And so in verses 14 to 19, he gives a series of three speeches. The first one is to the serpent in verses 14 and 15. The serpent isn't questioned by God. There's no dialogue that uh, God and the serpent have, but the serpent is cursed by God above all the other animals. And this curse is seen that the snake is going to slide around on the ground, and it will eat dust all of the days of its life. It is an image of subjection. It's an image of punishment that God gives to the serpent. But the second speech is to Eve. God says that as a result of her sin, she will have pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, I certainly think that this includes the pain associated with birthing a child, but I think it also more broadly includes the entire enterprise of motherhood, from conception to pregnancy to delivery to caring and raising for a child. While these are glorious and wonderful things, after sin, these things will be filled with pain and anguish. Genesis 3 brings into the world, it brings a world of infertility and miscarriage and infant loss and postpartum depression and a world of anxiety and guilt and shame and insecurity and disappointment, all of those things associated with parenting. That the family unit is no longer going to be a place that is exclusively blessing and comfort, but under sin, the family will be a place of uh, disconnection and pain. And not just 
pain and disconnection between parent and child, but also between husband and wife. God later says to Eve, your desire will be against your husband. That's how the latest version of the ESV translated. Your, uh, your, the version you're looking at might say something like, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, the original language there is difficult to translate, but the essence of what God is trying to communicate is that sin is going to mess up what God intended for marriage. In chapters 2, we see that Eve was created as a helper to Adam. They were created equal in glory and honor. Both were created in the image and the likeness of God, but they were not created the same. Their design, the way they were created, complements each other. What one has, the other lacks. To say it another way, they are equal, but not equivalent. That husband and wife are not interchangeable. And sin disrupts God's design for marriage. The picture that we have here in Genesis 3 is not of Eve as helper, but Eve as nemesis. One who was trying to overrule, one who was trying to undermine. The picture that we have of Adam is not one of love and service and commitment to Eve, but it's actually one of he's a bully. He's domineering. Sin tears apart God's design for relationships. That is why in a fallen world that all of our relationships will ultimately disappoint us. Genesis 3 means that at some level, your spouse will always let you down. Your kids will not turn out like you dreamed they would turn out. Your friends cannot be everything that you created, that you want them to be. But the third speech that God gives is a speech that he gives to Adam. He says to Adam, because of sin, Adam and all who follow after him, that they will be disconnected from one of the primary callings that they have in life, and that is to work. In Genesis 2, God tells Adam that he is to, he is to mimic the creative work of God by keeping the garden. But in Genesis 3, God says that because you ate of the fruit, you're going to fight for your food now. That the ground is no longer the servant of Adam, but now it is his enemy. And this extends just beyond farming because we see this in all of our work, that our jobs and our callings and our vocations always have more promise than reality. Work will always be a mixed bag for us. It will always be thorns and thistles. You can spend your whole life creating, and working, and building, only to find out that in the end that you are imminently replaceable. That on your last day, the show will go on, and you are replaceable. It could be easy for us to read these speeches and just see the consequences of sin, just see the negative aspects, but there are glimpses of grace that we see in these speeches that God gives to them. Just the fact that Eve will bear children is a sign of grace. God said, when you eat of the fruit, you'll surely die, but the death is not immediate, that God gives grace that, that the human race will go on. But not only would Adam and Eve had children, they were also able to work, that while work falls under the curse, there is still fruit and goodness that comes from work, that work is hard, but work provides. But a glimpse of grace that is most clearly seen is in verse uh, 15, the words that God has for the serpent. A famous verse called the Proto-Evangelium is the first gospel. This is that we interpret God's words to the serpent as the first whisper 
of a Redeemer that is to come, the first promise of good news, the one who was going to come, who would do everything right that Adam messed up. God says that he will put enmity between those who follow after the serpent and those who follow after the woman. These are collective nouns. There's going to be strife and battle uh, between those who follow after the woman and those who follow after the devil. But in the last line of verse, it moves from the plural to the singular. In order for the plural, in order for the group to be saved, the singular will have to work on their behalf. The seed of the woman, the one, will be bruised. But in the end, he is the one who will crush the head of the snake. The serpent will not have the last word. He will be crushed by the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The last response we see to Adam and Eve's sin is that God provides a covering for their sin. Adam and Eve's first response after they sinned was to try to find fig leaves to cover their nakedness. They felt exposed, they felt naked, and so they wanted to cover themselves, and the best they could find was fig leaves. Verse 21 says, the Lord God made for them garments of skin and he clothed them. In the previous two chapters, we read over and over, the Lord God made. Genesis 1 and 2 is God making all things in the span of six days. But in Genesis 3, he's added again, God made for them garments of clothes. We learn that the creator is going to be the redeemer as well. It can be easy to overlook the source. Where did these clothes that God gave to Adam and Eve, where did they come from? Their garments of skin meant that God took and killed one of the animals from the garden to cover their shame. God is teaching them and teaching us that it will only be by the blood of another that your sins will be covered. It will be by the pain and the suffering of another that your sins will be atoned for. God gives them better clothes, much better than fig leaves. He provides a covering for their shame and for their nakedness. Instead of exposing them to the judgment that they rightly deserved, he covers them in his mercy. So what are you and I to do with the shame in our lives? How are we healed from the disease of sin and death? We cannot ignore it. We cannot turn to blight. We cannot ignore or dismiss the shame, uh, the sin and the shame that it brings in our lives. But Genesis 3 actually shows us that we can face our sin, and our shame. We don't have to ignore it or hide. Our shame is healed when we are honest with God and when we are honest with each other. Shame grows in secret, but it cannot hide. It cannot live in the light. We want Faith Presbyterian Church, we want this church to be a place where we can be honest about our shame with each other. We want it to be a place where you can be honest about uh, the effects of sin in your life, what you have done and what has been done to you. And in that, that together we can point one another to the only one who can heal us from our sin and our shame. Because we know that just as Adam and Eve were clothed by the pain and blood of another, by faith we too are covered by the blood 
Jesus. And in him, all of our sin and all of our shame is taken away. And so if you're here this morning and filled with shame, you feel that wash of shame come over you even as we talk about it, I want to point you to Jesus. I want to point you uh, to the one who sees you to the bottom, one who knows you infinitely better than you even know yourself. But when he looks at you, he doesn't run away. He doesn't wince. He doesn't have second thoughts. He doesn't blink. But rather, he comes straight for you. And he longs to cover you in his grace. And he is the same God who welcomes sinful and shame-filled people to this table. For at his table, he reminds them anew that their sins have been forgiven and that they are covered by his blood. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take these words, that you would use um, a familiar story to us and that you would use it to transform us. Lord, we are thankful that in Jesus we have a covering for our sin uh, through his blood. And so, Lord, help us. Uh, we pray that you would remind us of that even as we come to this table. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.